I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Stella Firma inter-season content, bonus content, I guess. I today am your host, Bryn Monroe, and I am joined by the two stars of our wonderful show, Stella Firma, who are... Peering out of this big present is Bonus Ben. Walking incredibly slowly through a thin sheet of tinfoil, it's Tim Meredith. <laughs> That's right. These guys have uh, asked me back once again, much like the interseason content between seasons one and two. We're here for more, yet more, Tim and Ben do science. I didn't ask. I thought we were we were doing episode one of season three, but he's just here, so I guess we're doing this. No, now. no, no, no. Mainly for the reasons we haven't plotted it yet, so I don't know what sh- would happen. Sh- shut up, Tim. <laughs> Keep it behind the curtain. Ah. It's like everyone, everyone, no one knows we have no idea what we're doing. Um, Look, I've I've got an incomprehensible page of notes somewhere, which should serve. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how you function, and also how Stella Firma functions. So. Yep. 
So I think the first thing that's really important is to address the massive dead elephant in mm-hmm. the room. Stinky. Uh, in season two, David and Trexel, of course, moved out of Planet's design. We spent 15 episodes in the sales department and then approximately 10 more like eight, I suppose, episodes in the complaints department. Yeah, we became really lackadaisical with the idea of doing our jobs <laughs> yeah, at that point. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you, you didn't start off great, but it definitely got worse the, the more the more episodes we've <laughs> Look, racked up. You can up. always go downhill if you've got a good enough shovel. Remember that. And one of the key changes, at least from my perspective, about the, uh, the shift in departments in season two is there's been a lot less science. Less science. Mm. Mm. You don't design planets anymore, so you don't have to talk no. about the details of how a planet might work. Well, Bryn, isn't everything science, really, when you get yeah. down to it? Isn't, isn't, yeah. isn't everything science? So The science of, of love. love. Uh, yes, I think literally everything is science, but I was first invited on the show. I won't go through the, in, the entire uh, academic qualifications spiel again. It's a good, it's a good clip, but it's, you can from, listen back. it's, it's in it's the in first feed. Go and, listen, go and listen to Tim and Ben do science part one. Fundamentally, to recap, as far as science go, Bring goat loads. Mm, we got mm, none. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but importantly, my specialization has always been astrophysics and cosmology. Yes. Th- therefore, I very much don't look into, say, the sciences of psychology or uh, sociology or, you know, business studies. There's some science in business studies, right? Writing. Yeah, as we know from lazy journalism, a scientist does science. So if it's a science of some kind and you yeah, are a yeah. scientist, then come on and talk about global warming even if you have no idea what it is. So I, I guess, you know, you could bring on, say, a teaching expert or, or a business expert could do. to analyse, for example, Trexel's 10-step programme to sales success. Uh, and uh, criticise uh, uh, that. Sales domination. From sales domination, Thank of you. course. Sorry. And criticise that from a perspective of informed understanding. Yeah. Um, no, they'll definitely come in and be like, this is A-OK. <laughs> I love it. But, Profits up. <laughs> yeah. But that's really not my position. So I'm going to comb through the episodes of season two for tasty little scientific morsels mm. which i'm then going to expand into giant feasts oh, of delicious. just things i like talking about basically <laughs> uh while i occasionally ask questions that i hope you guys don't know the answers to so that once again i look really intelligent because that's how it worked there's last time. no subtext there's only text <laughs> sorry ben what you could say how much of this is you going well you made a throwaway comment to this one thing, so um, well, that's the episode. I've got my two pages of notes here, Ben. Ooh. So we shall find out. <laughs> right, let's okay. let's let's throw the metaphorical shrimp onto the metaphorical Barbie. Yeah, I've got a I've got a beer. I've got a cold one. So I've I'm genuinely got go. a pot of moisturizer, E forty five brand, just next to me. So if <laughs> he's, I get he's holding drink it, up it to drink the it, camera. drink it. Hang on, just suck just, it I'm, down. I'm it. Ooh, can you smell that? You can't. Cause no, this is no that's not how. These point, work. Point, point was that science. Science. Did Can he do a smell through a microphone? The, the answer? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> no, we just <laughs> don't we, teach no, the debate. proved that you can't. <laughs> okay. So, yes, our corporate masters have decreed that we uh, continue a, a successful thing from the past, despite the massive context changed, which is obviously very appropriate to Stella So we will plunge on. And in fact... Tim has managed to lead me directly into my first point because in episode 26 itself, the client who we are not designing a planet for, but hopefully selling a planet to, uh, establishes themselves very early as a big fan of the scientific method. So my first question is, what do we think the scientific method is? Stay at home. (laughs) Stop the virus. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know, I know. I've got an idea. I know. You, you, you may have your satire, Ben, but I think I have the answer. Mm. Tim, Tim, that was very generous. What, just, <laughs> it was, was not satire. I made a reference. Things that have happened. And, so, uh, joke I've, about current events, therefore satire. I've listened to the Now Show. I know how it works. For people outside of the UK, the Now Show is a moderate to poor satire show. <laughs> uh, so the scientific method is you you conduct you conduct exp- when you're trying to find out about stuff. You don't just go I saw a thing and therefore x equals y. You say, okay, I've got an idea that a thing might be a thing. So I'm going to go into a lab environment, which is some sort of controlled environment, and do tests and compare them and use controls and therefore, through scientific means, work out what is likely and what is not. Maybe not what's true, because what is truth? But have a a rigorous, controlled way of working things out that stands up to scrutiny. Science. Uh, mine's just hypothesis, experimentation, conclusions. No, I preferred mine that took a minute and a half to say. I mean, you, you've basically said the same thing, but Ben said it with better words. Shut up! So <laughs> he's got I, more I, degrees I, than I, I have. It. I guess. I guess. <laughs> I guess in this case, the points go to Ben. Are we doing points? We did points last time. Right? Uh, uh, we're doing points it's because all I just ha- got the first one again. I knew this would happen again. <laughs> so a hypothesis, as Ben says, or when you think a thing might be a thing, as Tim said. <laughs> Um, is I'm more intelligent than I true. sound. I I swear to you. I please believe me. <laughs> By my magic beans, <laughs> the the scientific method is essentially. I, I mean, I think of it as you know as a a framework for learning more about the universe we live in. Yeah. But yeah, it's exactly what it what it is 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 probably debatable from a philosophical perspective. But the conduct of the scientific method is, as Ben says, you have a hypothesis and you test it in some way. So you mentioned, Tim, going into lab conditions to do that, which is interesting because that's not necessarily an absolutely vital part of the scientific method. If you're testing your hypothesis, you are doing science. Okay. Uh, The third stage that uh, Ben has mentioned is also really important is the conclusion. You have to use the test results that you have to basically refine your hypothesis tim you mentioned going into lab conditions to do your test now why do you think we we do that why do you think we go into lab conditions to conduct experiments and tests of hypotheses because things are complicated so let's say the one the the really good one i remember is there is um i can't remember where it is but basically they use old salt mines like the most lab condition place i can think of is when they're trying to detect um like deep space particles and stuff and like dark matter and all that kind of stuff the, there's so much stuff going on, like so many cosmic rays and, you know, atoms, let's say, flying about the place, that when you've got really sensitive equipment, then then you basically, you can't hear it over the static. So you go down a giant great salt mine into the Earth, where it's still quite noisy, but less noisy, and you basically use that as, and that's like the, that's like the a lab condition. It's a more controllable environment where you've got less crap going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I would say broadly the same thing, but I'm going to say the word variables. And <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a minute. Uh, I've just realised something. All I need is a thesaurus and then I can win. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to give the point to Tim that time. Because yeah. <laughs> he talked about he talked about detecting deep space particles yeah, with, boy. In, in salt mines and that makes me happy. I've been listening to Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything. So I'm... Oh, I'm... I love that. It's oh. so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, it's can I remember most of it? No, I can't. The main thing i remember is geology doesn't agree with any other part of geology that's about where i've got to and people like nicked each other's fossils loads that is an excellent book to read if you feel like knowing more about world stuff basically 
But yeah, the big takeaway is the world is really complex. I think, you know, the clip that got quoted most from my last special was planets are big, y'all. They are. And this time I would say that stuff is complicated, y'all. <laughs> that Now you're going to get two gravestones just so they can both be carved. That's my grand plan. That's my grand plan. <laughs> Double epitaph Brin, they'll call him. And so, yeah, lab conditions or any other kind of restriction on a testing environment is to basically, as you say, reduce the noise, reduce the other variables that might be interfering. Like, most of our hypotheses are relatively simple. You know, we say, well, if this thing, then this thing. You know, it's it's a simple causal statement between one variable and a result. And that's really hard to test because in any situation, you're going to have so many variables and they could all be interfering. And if you're not keeping a very tight control on a bunch of them, then they're going to change your results and not the thing you actually want to test. So we use a, uh, a lab of some kind or, you know, a testing facility or whatever it looks like you do your best to reduce extraneous variables, reduce the complicating factors and pare things down to just the relationship you want to test. Which, as you can tell in our episode, we did because we're in a room with just two people. So that's a lab. Well, uh, ap- apparently not. According to Trexel in that very episode, this is my oh, next no. question, is what, what does a scientific lab look like? What does Trexel state is the one oh. really essential element of a, of a science lab? Beakers! Uh... <laughs> oh. I reckon I know. Bunsen burners. Uh, A white coat. Point to Tim. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently Bunsen burners are the one thing that makes something a science (laughs) lab. I get a point. What what is a thing that you said recorded and then listened back to three times during an editing process? Well done, Tim. You got it on your third go. Yes. Nailed it. (laughs) You just started naming things that you found in science classrooms. (laughs) That one kid who sets fires to things. The points are completely arbitrary. Ben won last time, but if I can make the score 1-1 after season two, then I figure you guys will be morally obligated to invite me back at the end of season three. We can have a Mighty Ducks 3, yeah. No, we're going to bring you back for... uh, You're going to host Tim and Ben do poetry. And then we'll get Anil to do, uh, Tim and Ben do specifically <laughs> physics. And then we'll get Helen in for Tim and Ben speak languages that Helen doesn't speak. I, I couldn't land the joke because I don't know what languages he speaks. Um, um, ancient Sumatran. I, I will add that Anil knows a lot about a lot. And he could do this episode on almost any topic oh, other than, man. you know, planetary physics, probably. Handsome and smart. It's one of the fewer bits uh, I know more about than he does. Yeah, so I don't know why Bunsen burners specifically. Uh, You did also, interestingly, you you did mention in that same episode beakers as another fundamental part of science. Love a beaker. And Ben, yeah, white coats. Uh, White coats, probably not necessary. In fact, what, 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 what do you think the purpose of a white coat in a science lab is? So if you spill stuff on you, you can tell. Yeah, it wets PPE. It's not. Yeah. It's not. Yeah, you know, scientific equipment as such. I've got an idea as well, and I. You know what? I might be wrong about this, but I imagine a lot of white coats are worn because people want to be like, "Hey, look, I'm a scientist," and that's a genuine. I think a lot of times that kind of. I think with doctors in America is the most like doctors in in England. They don't wear white coats at all, whereas doctors in America, like consultants, wear them to be like, "Hey, look." I'm a big, important senior doctor, but they're not helpful. In fact, they transmit infection and they try and make people not wear them. So does does, does much go on like that in, in more like lab science world? Are people wearing coats when they don't really need to wear a coat, but they've got a nice coat? Uh, it's certainly possible, isn't it? I, I have to confess I've never worked in a science lab. I couldn't uh, tell you for certain. If 
if Rach wanders past at any point, she used to be a, a lab manager, so I'll, uh, That's true. I'll ask oh, her. That's true. Very nice, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm pretty sure the white coats are, are PPE rather than rather than equipment, though. Bunsen burners and beakers, though. Uh, I mean, this is very much the uh, the, the British schoolboy understanding uh, <laughs> of a science lab. Uh, what kind of science do you think you'd be doing if you, in fact, had Bunsen burners and beakers? Uh, maths. Yeah, maths. <laughs> <laughs> Can't set far to a book without a Bunsen burner, Bryn. Exactly. Think it through. And you can't distill the numbers to drink the number juice. (laughs) Now, we need to take a titration of the number six and put it into a three-mole solution of the number eight. That's right. I'm listing all of the terms. that Nobody adequately explained a mole to me. It's a strength of acid. Sure. Now people can. Yeah. yeah, When I was in secondary school, I failed science very badly. A a mole is a specific number of atoms. Oh, I thought it was the strength of the concentration of acid. I mean, you... You could use it as a concentration of acid in terms of moles per litre, I think. Mm, but a, a mole it. specifically is 6.023 times 10 to the power of 23 atoms, if I remember Avogadro's number correctly. thing is, oh, right. if somebody had said, Tim, moles are about Avogadro's number, I'd have been like, hold the goddamn phone. That is an amazing name. Explain this to me further. <laughs> but they didn't. They said, shut up, Meredith. And I didn't learn anything and I failed science. <laughs> I also like the idea of if you explain or if you describe the concentration of acid in terms of moles, if I am correct, all they're doing is pointing at that beaker and saying, that acid has loads of atoms in it. Just <laughs> so <laughs> many atoms. So yeah. many atoms. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, it's number of atoms of a specific type that you're measuring in comparison yeah. to other atoms that aren't that atom. Uh, yeah, potentially. A mole is just a number. It's you know, So you can be measuring it in of itself or in comparison to another thing fine but why yeah. did why did no one explain this to me when i was an ang- angry irritating child i can't tell why I, I can only imagine right but my question remains what kind of science can you actually do with bunsen burners and beakers because you can't do astrophysics i'll tell it's, you that much it's, ca- it's chemistry it's chemistry yeah, basically what you're doing there is you're going to be studying chemicals. You're going to be studying, there's, and there's various different branches. You could be doing metallurgy, and but it's 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 wonderful that that's that was immediately where Trexel went when uh, asked to create a scientific environment. Yeah. Because to me, that shows that he's been brought up in the British school system of the late 20th century. <laughs> yeah, we're doing uh, science, which means just chemistry. <laughs> uh, hang, hang on a minute, Brent. Are you saying? Are you saying <laughs> preach, ben, we draw preach. on our own life experiences and don't subsume ourselves completely into the characters of these people who live in <laughs> the year of our Lord Stella Firma? The year of our board, Stella Firma. Eh? Oh, Ooh, oh, Ben, you're fine. Steal it. Bryn, you're okay. on board. <laughs> See you later. How good's your nasal voice, Bryn? <laughs> I remember there was uh, this is, I'm just going to be nicking things in the Bill Bryson book now but there was a thing where there was a there was a physicist and he said very unkindly it might have been Bertrand Russell or some, somebody fancy like that and he said that physics is science everything else is stamp collecting and just dropped the mic and walked away it, oh. uh, to be quite honest that is that is a cl- that's just a classic physicist they They're are all like that real bitchy physicists they are, are really they are so I, I used to i used to live with a physicist and my <laughs> my god the incredible level of arrogance that comes with a <laughs> physicist is is just extraordinary <laughs> look as as a theoretical physicist i naturally understand the entire universe he's put a crown on and he's put a crown on titled to a certain <laughs> level of arrogance over where did ermine rogue come from <laughs> <laughs> and that scepter the, the, the other thing that's mentioned in this the same episode is the need, need for a sterile environment mm. 
and Trexel suggests a giant glass ball. Yeah. Because apparently glass is inherently sterile. E- easy to clean. It's wiped down, certainly. Uh, so, what do we mean by a sterile environment? Uh, and how do you achieve a sterile environment? Bleach. Cover it in bleach. Um, a sterile environment, yeah, it's it's, a, it's an environment that you keep free of interfering detritus, whatever you, whatever you want to call that. Maybe it's microbes, maybe it's dust. You know, it's clean. Clean room. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a point for successfully describing well, I, a sterile environment. How do you I achieve a, a sterile I didn't, environment? I, I, I didn't get a, 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 the possible the option. No, well, sorry. Yeah, this you'll this, have to you'll the have way to we jump in before Tim one of these days. The way do we you know how difficult now. that is. Do you know how difficult that is to speak before Tim does? <laughs> Especially with the delay, I have set this Skype you call pro- up so that I always have five seconds before you <laughs> put an artificial delay on Ben. Sorry, Ben. <laughs> you apparently won't be able to use the same tactic you used last time of just waiting for him to say something wrong and yeah. then coming in with the correct answer. Yeah. <laughs> Lying in wait. <laughs> so h- how do we achieve a sterile environment? There are many methods. <laughs> I mean, d- genuinely, uh, bo- boil it, uh, microwave it, x-ray it. Like, there's lots of ways. D- do something what kills the pathogens. Yes, uh, point for that. Uh, so sterile is normally in reference to specifically microbe contamination. Uh, so you're right, the, the purpose of making something sterile is to avoid contamination of something and Tim has raised some of the things that might be considered contaminants such as microbes but also stuff like dust uh, sterile is normally in reference to removing microbes uh, so it's it's more important generally when conducting biological research or medical research rather than say metallurgic research I'd, lo- I'd love to see a virus on a sword being like nailed it I <laughs> <Yes>. made it <laughs> Yes. Um, because the things you're testing for, you know, if you're testing biological things, it's more important to get rid of biological contaminants. And if you're testing, you know, mineral objects, then it's more important to get mineral contaminants. Um, and yeah, the, the the normal way of, say, achieving sterility in a standard lab of the kind that is described in that episode would be to boil the things inside them. Just everything. Fill Basically, it with water. Heat you, up. You, your glass ball <laughs> is in no way naturally sterile, okay. uh, and you're probably right. going to have to boil it to, to make it sterile. Uh, wiping it down with bleach would also not hurt um you might want to do that first i say when you um, say not hurt it depends how careful you are when you're wiping the entire room down with bleach but i take it well point. indeed indeed but also depending on exactly what you're testing of course the presence of bleach in the air of the lab might also be considered a i was testing if bleach was in things and i've covered everything in bleach <laughs> ah! so here's, here's here's a question here's a genuine question if, say, like, the sterility and contamination is, is a relative thing. So, you know, when they did that thing where there was those two, like, Bell Radio Lab technicians and they spent a year trying to, like, clean out the interference from some broadcast equipment and it turned out they'd accidentally discovered the background radiation from the Big Bang. Yes. Would that count as, like, well, it's not a sterile environment because you've got all of this, you know, what you're looking for can't be found because the environment is causing interference in whatever tests you happen to be running. Good question. I mean, they won a Nobel Prize for that, but sure, it, was, yeah. it, it wasn't what they were hoping for. I mean, it's technically not sterile, but uh, good luck. Well, I, <laughs> I, so once again, sterile is not quite the same, it's not quite the right word, because what, what we would refer to in that case in a physics experiment of that kind is it's, you've got a, what we would call a noisy environment. Oh, okay. Um, essentially, where you're, you're attempting to detect, detect some sort of signal, and we we call an unwanted signal noise so Hence, that and, and yes. noise can occur in astrophysics you know we're often measuring radiation from the sky whether that's light radiation heat radiation or indeed microwave radiation and we call unwanted radiation noise in that context so what would you call the perfect environment like a silent environment What's would it be a silent environment or Sunday? would it be a sterile or like uncontaminated 
Yeah, I think un- uncontaminated is probably a broader term because that that covers like a sterile environment for certain types, or a or a si- yeah, I guess a silent environment for different types of research. Now, uncontaminated is you know an ideal. There's an old joke about physicists solving problems. A physicist asks, uh, "Which comes first, the chicken or the egg?" And they say, well, I've got a solution, but it's only true for a spherical chicken in a vacuum. <laughs> a lot of physics is about answering questions in completely imaginary, perfect conditions, uh, which you can't achieve in the real world. And that's a really good example of it. The radiation they discovered is referred to as the cosmic microwave background. It is indeed a bunch of radiation that is literally everywhere in the universe and was created, I believe, 300,000 years after the Big Bang, well, for reasons I won't go into. I was going to say, say what happened there, then? I could give you a very detailed history of the early universe, uh, but it might take a while. There was um, a secondary pop. Yes. The smallish bang. No, the 300,000 years is a different thing. I think it might be three seconds. I might be remembering my... That is a... Okay, I know in terms of the age of the universe, <laughs> that's not very long, but that is quite long. That is, relative yeah. Relative to us. There's certain key points after the Big Bang which are, you know, like the important ones. And I may be confusing which is which. The key point is, is just after the Big Bang, the universe is incredibly hot. And when it's that hot, nothing can really exist. And the cosmic microwave background is created at a point where it reaches a certain level of coldness, or well, not hotness, I guess, because it's still really hot, for essentially photons to start existing in a meaningful way. Right. And photons are the particles that make up all electromagnetic radiation, and the cosmic microwave background is a form of electromagnetic radiation. If so, I was, if I was a betting is, man, I'd say that was a three seconds. I'd be weird if for the first 300,000 years of the universe, p- protons did not exist. F- photons. 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 Shut up. Everybody shut up. I tried to say something smart oh, and it backfired. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when I say they, they couldn't exist is they would be they would have been there, but they would have been being constantly created and destroyed oh, and it's at this right, at this right. exact stage. And I cannot remember the exact time off the top of my head, I'm afraid. They they basically, the the universe becomes cold enough that photons can start to pass through the universe rather than constantly being absorbed and re-emitted by everything else that is there. Fair. Um, so yes this this cosmic microwave background is everywhere in the universe all the time so the idea of having an environment where you filter this out is basically impossible you could shield yourself from it that's but right. that's actually very difficult to do if you're trying to send a signal any distance at all you know yeah. like outside a single room then you can't shield from this background unless so, you have a very thin but very thickly shielded pipe and a good line of sight and the earth isn't curved Yes, those I mean, situations, I'm a physicist. If you've got a flat Earth, and go with yes. me here because the phrase flat oh, Earth carries yeah, a lot of baggage. <laughs> a physicist gets up at a podium and says, now, before you go a bit cross, I'm going to use the phrase flat Earth in this speech. But, but... <laughs> the, thing, the thing is, all the physicists in the room will shrug and say, sure, spherical sure. chickens in a vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fair enough, all right. There are plenty of experiments you can do where it is impossible to achieve a perfect environment for it. And this is a really good example of one of them. We, you know, you, there are other ways to take out confounding factors. There's other ways to remove noise. For example, once the cosmic microwave background has been discovered, and you know it's there, well, any future experiments, you're like, well, we know it's there. We just, but we basically subtract it from all our numbers. You go into Audacity, you select Analyze Noise Profile, you select All Universe, and hit Filter, and and then it's done. I'm, I'm actually going to give you a point for that. Yes. Because it is almost exactly the same <laughs> process. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, if we're just playing Calvin Ball, fine. 
<laughs> no, Mornington I've Crescent, all ben, faith. We're playing Mornington Crescent and you know it. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I should. I am from the UK. I should Come say on. Mornington Crescent, not Calvin Ball. Come okay. on, you, you garbage trash podcast. boy. Yeah. Okay, okay. So I think we've had enough setup now. We've talked about the scientific methods and the foundation of science itself, We're 20 minutes in. We've done the setup. A, Let's go. Yeah, that's that's me talking about one episode from this and season. We were worried that we wouldn't have enough content <laughs> for an hour. Teehee. So, boys. Lads. In episode 28. Yes. There's, there's a certain... 30 second section during which I could feel you both looking at me <laughs> with a very specific cheeky look in your eyes which I've seen from both of you on several occasions uh, uh, what? what? us? we? <laughs> pray tell you mention the substance Excuse me. let me put my monocle in so I can be shocked and drop it into a glass of water you mentioned the substance platanium yes I notice yes. not, not as it says in the show notes platinum but Platanium. <laughs> Platanium is apparently a subject rarer and more dangerous than gold. Yes. Which is my first minor wince. <laughs> and you state specifically, and you repeat this, <laughs> Wait, this sentence no, a I, few times. A I just want making... to double back. I just want to double back on, on you wincing uh, rarer and more dangerous. I mean, the fact that it's fake makes it rarer. <laughs> And the fact that we've weaponized it against you probably makes it more dangerous. Because as far as I know, gold is actually quite a pretty safe. safe. Pretty yeah, safe. Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah. Why is it not just platinum, which is rarer than gold? I mean, it's because, not more dangerous because neither of them are dangerous. I, but... as the person who introduced it, knew that if I said platinum or plutonium, Bryn would be able to say, <laughs> "Well, boys, what are the actual properties?" So I said, "Platinum." But we haven't even okay, let okay. you finish your question, Bryn. No. <laughs> the three. The, the, the sentence that was repeated two or three times which i could i could feel you both making direct eye contact with while you said it through a podcast which is an impressive feat can be done you said it was mined from inside a black hole yes it was yeah Yeah, absolutely 100 percent. that's how you do it mined from inside (laughs) just because a black hole just because you're Limited understanding of astro- <laughs> astrophysics <laughs> cannot comprehend <laughs> the possibility of Stella Firma's mining technology. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist, Bren. You get an equally dense pickaxe. Is it hard to pick up? Yes, it is. But like with like, finished. Uh, so, so, so I'm subtracting a point from Tim there <laughs> oh, no! because we covered this last time. Anything that is equally dense to a black hole is what, it's all, Tim? It's, it's also a black hole. It's also a black hole. <laughs> you pick up the pickaxe and your arm disappears into it. And you're like, oh yeah, I forgot. Hang on a minute. How have I got within thousands of thousands and thousands of miles of this dense pickaxe? Yeah, I suppose apparently in the far-flung future where there is only Stella Firma, yeah. we have invented some form of technology that allegedly allows us to mine things from inside a black hole. Nothing alleged about it. Stuff's built out of platinum. They love yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. The proof of the pudding is in the fact that we've built things out of this fake thing we made up. Yes. So, inside a black hole, what do we think there is? Uh, Hang on a minute. I think the answer is we don't know. Yes, yes. I vote for Ben. We don't know, Bryn. How would you find out? The, the light can't get out of it. The light can't get out of it. So how uh, would you look? Uh, okay, Ben. Yeah, would you care to expand on that answer? Why don't we know? 
Because you can't perceive inside a black hole because nothing comes back to perceive. So how do you know? I will accept that. A point to Ben. We don't know what's inside a black hole because nothing can get out of a black hole, which includes substances mined from inside it, but also includes all information about what is even inside it. Uh, So we do not technically know anything about the interior of a black hole. A black hole has something called the event horizon, and it is that is the boundary through which nothing can pass in an outwards direction. But our current understanding of black holes oh, is Oh, I've got a second answer, sorry. Um, it's platinum. Uh, yes, sorry. Mm. Ben of has course. a point. It's platinum. Of course. Of course. <laughs> uh, our current understanding of black holes indicate that the laws of physics actually continue to act normally within the bounds of the event horizon. There is no reason that they wouldn't. But just really, really small. Mostly what's inside a black hole is nothing, just like what's outside a black hole. A black hole is generally formed from a star, and therefore a star is, you know, some stuff surrounded by mostly empty space. Inside a black hole, it's the same. It's mostly empty space. What happens is, is that all the mass in a black hole, as far as we understand, the laws of physics say that the mass will be concentrated to an infinitesimal point at the centre. And it is that point at the centre, which we call a singularity, where the laws of physics break down. But actually, if we consider the boundary of the black hole to be the event horizon, then most of the inside of the black hole is in fact nothing. And if we consider the boundary to be the event horizon, are we agreeing with the scientific community or are we making some stuff up? No, we are. That, that, is, the, that is what is generally accepted because, okay. because that's the border through which nothing can pass in an outwards direction. Uh, it's the point at which the hole becomes black. Essentially, yes, yeah, sure. And uh, you have you can have uh, what's called Hawking radiation around the event horizon, which oh, is a you very get that slow nice little like release. double loop thing, right? Or is that a different thing? Ish, yeah. I mean that that's more of a representation of, but potentially, oh, yeah. yeah. So I, I didn't think yeah. you'd look into the sky and you'd see one of them, but I mean, like seen through <laughs> yes. certain like. I found that something stuff. fun. I found that something fun. Let's let's ignore the questions we asked Bryn come here and ask us for a moment. Um, I found out that atoms don't look anything like every atom I've ever seen drawn looks like. No, that's they're all lies because all yeah. of the electrons are basically everywhere in a big cloud of potentialness, and so yes, it wouldn't look absolutely. anything like every atom I've ever been shown. Explain. Atoms are drawn like solar systems because apparently people who draw diagrams of atoms believe children are stupid. I would have preferred a cloud of look. Here is a globe. The atom is everywhere and nowhere all at the same time. Again, if you'd have told me that and that dude's crazy ass name, I'd have been much more interested in science. <laughs> to be fair, though, it would it would make it much more difficult to count the electrons when you were doing one of those puzzles about like we knock the electron out and which isotope does it become? So you, could, you have to <laughs> just count dissolve it into a cloud and go best of luck. Yeah, exa- exactly. You just <laughs> flick one out of the cloud and like have a guess. This is actually an important point about science. Is uh, you know, we talked about science being a method of understanding truth or not, as the case may it's be. It's an onion of lies. And a lot of science is lies, because what science really is, is a model of the universe, of reality. It's not, you know, it is not necessarily a perfect understanding. And especially when quantum physics was being developed, where we discovered stuff like an electron is actually a cloud of possibilities we discovered that the universe is much weirder and harder to understand than we could possibly have imagined before. So we stopped trying. Basically, (laughs) yes, what we have to accept is that our understanding of the universe is what we call a model. And the model is only useful as long as it makes predictions. But the model can also be useful 
even when it doesn't necessarily reflect reality. And so chemists, to understand chemical reactions and to understand things like isotopes or chemical bonding between elements, their model of the atom doesn't need to care about the fact that electrons aren't little balls of stuff orbiting around the centre of the atom. Okay. All right. they, they, their model allows them to make accurate predictions about the real world based on something that is not technically true, but we talked about the scientific method, hypothesis, test, conclusion. If their hypothesis is a model that in certain circumstances we can say an atom works like this and it makes correct conclusions, then it doesn't matter that the real picture is more complicated. And we do this all the time in physics as well. So you probably both studied, you know, back in school, stuff like the laws of motion. And you, you probably had to calculate, you know, cars moving around or billiard balls or or things on slopes. I was asked and... to. I can't claim that I ever did, but I was certainly <laughs> asked to, Ben. Probably. And at some point I was asked about Boyle's Law and shown a spring. And I was like, ah, I got an equal. I don't know. <laughs> sure. But in all these examples, we ignore air resistance. Unless you're studying, you know, and depending on what age you're studying these things, you may or may not ignore friction. But we know these things from our everyday experience exist uh, and we know that if we wanted to get super accurate results, we'd have to include air resistance and friction. But actually, the results that we get by ignoring them are close enough that if we don't need to be 100% accurate, if we're just trying to make a decent prediction, the prediction is good enough most of the time. It's spherical chickens again. Spherical chickens in a vacuum. Absolutely. And it is, it's an important joke in a way, because what it says is, well, reality is complex and messy, as we've already established, and science helps us understand it. But if science is making accurate predictions, that's really what's important. And accurate predictions are, you know, essentially specific to a certain field or a certain test. You know, if I if I say, well, if I chuck this acid and this alkali into a cup together, I don't know, need to know what's going to happen with every single atom inside what I need to know is what's going to end up in the cup at the end. There's potentially a lovely analogy, I think, from I think it's from cartography, where they say the only true map is the exact size and shape of the thing you are trying to map. But best of Absolutely. luck taking that on a short camper vaning holiday in the Cotswolds. So <laughs> we, we use the Ordnance Survey and we like it. Perfect. Perfect. Another thing that annoyed me. We're going to jump here. We've, we've, we've talked about episode 26 and episode 28. And as I said, there was very little science in this season. So there were way fewer things that annoyed me. In episode 40, Hartro tries to kill you both. Her first attempt to kill you both was by doing what? Fill the room with acid, I think. No, it was, it was lava. It was, oh, lava. it was hot slurry. It was hot, hot slurry. slurry. It was hot slurry masquerading was hot- as lava. It was yes. hot slurry masquerading as lava, exactly. Although we don't necessarily know that slurry isn't partially made out of hot stones, just saying, but go on. <laughs> so in the episode, we definitely described it as being similar enough to lava. Hmm. Wait, hang uh, on a minute, hang on a can... minute. Is this, uh, no, hang on, I'm going to preempt you. Is this because it's technically magma? <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. Oh, I'm, not, I'm, not I'm not quibbling about terminology here. <laughs> Where's our caldera, Bryn? Where's Wait, our caldera? <laughs> Also, Bryn, you're a physicist and you're not quibbling about terminology. I don't think you're a real physicist. <laughs> you're a botanist in a lab coat. Oh, they're even worse. <laughs> if, 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 we, if we take a room and we fill, say, the bottom 10 centimetres yes. with lava sure. or mm. a substance that is the equivalent heat of Analogous. lava. Analogous, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. How easy do we think it might be to survive in that room? Uh, am I a clone? <laughs> 
Sure. I'm not. Cool. Though. In which case, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Explain to me a clone's biology. Right back at you, Bryn. Okay, but let's say I, I, Trexel is a human. I am also in that room. I, I don't remember. We I are so believe... very loose with the definition of human. <laughs> I don't believe your biology makes a difference here. Is it going uh, to uh, mean? Well, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. I could get super strong without having any possible <laughs> physical changes. So. I mean, explain that one, physicist. So, okay, can I can maybe say that perhaps, perhaps... All right, yes, I'll answer the question in good faith, the, I suppose. <laughs> the air in the room is going to get quite hot. I'm going to give a point to Tim. Yeah, Partly because that's the right answer. It's a and pyroclastic flow. <laughs> that's fine. I gave myself a million billion points just then, so I'm all Listeners, good. you can't see this, but he's actually just holding armfuls of points and nuzzling his face into them, <laughs> laughing... Like a, only um, from the waist up, Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> so yeah, so in the episode, uh, David seems to be okay as long as he's not touching the lava. And this yes. is a common misunderstanding in from the, places, the floor is lava know, of our for childhood. For example, <laughs> in everyday childhood games, and yeah. also in Hollywood and movies. You Do know. you mean Indiana Jones lied to me? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. 
Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Yes, I'm afraid so. There are three ways by which heat travels. Do we know what they are? Uh, uh, weight convection. Yep. Radiation. Yep. And Uber. And a third one that I don't know. Convection, radiation, and... Ooh. I'm going to say emanation, which I think is just radiation, and I got my thesaurus out, but it's a, it's a big <laughs> word. Convection, radiation. Oh, I feel like I know it, but I can't give you an answer, which normally means I don't know it. Bryn, what's the answer? <laughs> the third one is conduction. Ah, oh, yes, obviously. Conduction, convection, radiation. And uh, I'm an idiot. I forgot like what happens when a fork gets hot. Basically, <laughs> uh, and basically, this is how heat travels through a solid substance or another a, a, a substance of similar density to a solid, a fluid substance, i.e., a liquid or a gas, and through a vacuum. Conduction is solid. Convection is liquid. Radiation is gas. No, 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 no. no. Convection is liquid and gas, and yes. radiation is, which is it's why you have a- radiation in space. Is through a vacuum, yes. Uh, so the sun radiates because it has to go through. No, space. I believe that there's gas in between us and the sun, and that's how the heat gets here. I'm afraid that theory, that scientific theory, was disproved what? in the early 20th century. Hang on a minute. Uh, what about the plum enough, pudding? Please tell me that the plum pudding still stands. <laughs> but funnily enough, actually, that theory was reproved in uh, 2050, 55. Yep. So <laughs> sorry. Turns out there's secret black black matter gas. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's where all the dark matter went. Yeah, they built a pipe from they, the sun to earth. They were like, "Sorry, guys, there's no such thing as a vacuum. It's actually just dark matter." And we got confused. Whoopsie! Not <laughs> you know impossible. We, you know how we couldn't see it? Well, well, <laughs> couldn't see the wood for the trees. It turns out. I mean, we we don't know what dark matter is, and if in fact the properties of dark matter were were consistent with that hypothesis, you you could go about testing it. Yeah, so uh, all, all three methods of heat transfer are happening at all the time, it, but it's about which, which one happens best. But essentially, the laws of thermodynamics tell us that heat always moves from a hotter to a colder body. My favourite formulation of the, laws of the laws of thermodynamics is you can't win, you can't break even, and you can't get out of the game. Ah, nice. That's a good simplification. I didn't understand that. Somebody explain it to me. <laughs> Uh, so thermodynamics is, is fundamentally about how energy moves around. Yeah. And basically, the three laws of thermodynamics boil down to you can't create energy out of nothing. You can't win. You can't transfer energy with 100% efficiency. You'll always waste somewhere else. But basically, you, you can't transfer energy from one form to another with 100% efficiency. You'll always create Something. a third, yeah. a, a little bit of loss into a third form of energy. Noise, heat, whatever. Exactly. And you can't get out of the game is you can't destroy energy either, but also you can't... I forget exactly how you phrase that one, but, it, but a lot of thermodynamic laws are about closed systems and stuff. So it's like you can't break these laws by expanding your system, essentially. Also, sorry, very quickly circling back. With the uh, convection, radiation and conduction thing, does that mean a radiator is actually a convectionator? Sort of, yes. Wow. Unless, un- sorry. unless I've sucked all the uh, air out of my room. My room is now full of scales because they've all fallen from my eyes. Sorry, <laughs> let me just shift these away. <laughs> well, as I said, all, all three forms of heat transfer are happening at any given time from a hot object. If a hot object is near a cold object, 
or surrounded by cold air, for example, then on the very surface, conduction happens. You know, the, the hot object conducts heat into the, the cold air. Radiation is being given off. Heat radiation is being given off by the hot object and being absorbed by the cold object. But it, certainly in a fluid substance, the main transfer of heat is through convection, which is where the little bit of the air next to the hot object has gotten hot first and has started to move around the room. So we'd have been pyroclastic flowed to death pretty quickly from superheated gas. Well, essentially, yes. If the slurry, the hot slurry introduced to the room was in fact the temperature of lava, it would not take very long at all for that heat to be spread to all the air in the room. I can't remember if we explicitly gave a reference to how hot it was. Like, it was definitely hot enough to kill you. Sure. But but, but boiling water would do that. Like, would do a big number on you. Yeah. But I can't remember if we had the thing where, like... And it might have only been soundscape, but like, you know, the the, the, the bed legs ca- catch fire as they touch them and stuff like that. Because obviously boiling water, <laughs> it would just be submerged and all the yes. objects would be sad It'd they cook. wouldn't be on fire. You'd get sort of a soggy, wobbly table like pasta. Yeah. I'm very much using a little a little scientific oh, license no, no, no. here. Because... We, were, we were 100% being like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's lava. lava but... So I, I seem to remember, maybe this is because... Maybe this is because it's being insulated by rock, but I seem to remember people standing next to lava flows and being like, this right here is lava and poking it with a stick because like the rock has cooled. So it's still lava, but the rock that's cooled down is insulating the inside, which is still lava. So one of the key facts there is also the environment in which this is taking place. So if you've got a small (laughs) stream of lava flowing down a mountain... Lots of room and lots of air, yeah. You've got lots of room, you don't have that much lava... But and, and the hot air, you know, the air heats up and very quickly moves away from the lava. But, it, you know, it's not being it's not being contained in one place. And so the hot air quickly leaves. All right. Bucket of lava in a walk in wardrobe. Do I survive? Probably not. Really? A, just Probably a bucket? Not. Yes, I think. Now, you can do specific calculations about how much heat there is in the lava and how much heat will be transferred to the air and how quickly that will be. But essentially, if something is, is in fact several hundred degrees, if it's hot enough to be considered lava, then it's going to heat the air around it very quickly. And we've, very, we've definitely established in the past that the, the room that uh, Trexel and David live in is a pretty closed environment. That David lives in and Trexel visit sometimes. That's the, that's also, the one, Also, yes. I want to circle back to what kind of bucket are you holding, Tim, that just is full of lava? We're not playing Minecraft. One of the ones from a foundry. That has liquid iron ore in it. One of the big stone ones. I think they're stone. I think they're stone. Fair enough. Are they buckets? Yes. They've literally no, got that, a giant swingy handle. Yeah, but at that point, are they called like cauldrons or something? Duh, that's just a fancy bucket with ideas above its station. <laughs> I like the idea of like a, a really, a really, a, a witch with no airs just uses a bucket instead it's of bucket. A, a cauldron. Yeah. Ah, don't do that stuff. Anyway, obble bubble, boil and trouble, get in the bucket. <laughs> when shall we three meet again i don't know text me it walks out yeah yes so I'm, I'm afraid in the game the floor is lava you die very quickly whether or not you touch the lava because the air around you becomes superheated uh, and i'm pretty sure that was the fate of david seven in that episode but i'm going to give the point to ben for that question because he got two out of three versions of heat and he was very good at finding potential loopholes to divert <laughs> me from my <laughs> and i think that deserves a point yeah for trickiness if nothing else got those got those big strong clone lungs <laughs> uh, yeah so m- part of the point for knowledge and part of the point for nerd pedantry both of which i appreciate Love it. In episode 34, we have a client looking to buy a planet who is a mantis shrimp. Yes. Stefan. And the mantis shrimp can apparently see the hidden colours. Yes. And all the uh, 
the wavelengths of light which David and Trexel are not privy to. Yes. Yes, and we're very jealous. Yeah, the big point is the jealousy and the, the desire to, to, to conquer the same worlds as the mantis shrimp. Do you know how hard it was during that episode not to say octarine? <laughs> it was so difficult not to say octarine. I assumed as much. We were all sitting on chests with many legs. So what do we know about light? We mentioned the, the concept of wavelengths of light. Do we know what the wavelength of light is? And in terms of seeing hidden colours... There's a very good, you know, scientific principle on which that could be based. And in fact, several non-human creatures do in fact Mm. see what we could think of as hidden colours because they are able to see things that we cannot. I believe this is a rare example of where Tim and Ben knew some real life facts about the mantis shrimp. Because I believe this is true, yeah. Because obviously what we consider visible light is very much visible to humans so the visible spectrum is very much from a human standpoint so i believe that mantis shrimps can see like up into ultraviolet and down into uh, i don't know infrared infrared and things like that so their visible spectrum is much broader than ours so there are potentially what we would if we could see them class as different colors if only we had the eyes well i think that's the problem as well we can't tell because we can't perceive as a mantis shrimp and any way that we do perceive infrared and ultraviolet is being interpreted into a computer human visible spectrum so we don't know what it looks like we can't know what it looks like a question is there any is this is it sort of a bit of a tree falling in the forest question of everything that we consider a color is our brain's interpretation of a wavelength so that there isn't any independent there's no independent color of processing of our brain that's how you get colour blindness. Yes, that's a very good point. Yes, that's a very R- good red point. Red isn't red. Red is just what we agree is red. This is a university. Broadly. We've been drinking its 3M argument. What I yeah, call th- red, <laughs> man, is that what you call red? Well, no, dude? but again, like for physics, it's a model. We yes, have a model of absolutely. red and we apply the model to the world. That means we can all understand unless you have colour blindness and then it becomes a problem. It's very yes. irritating and you have to have special yes, settings. I mean, there's certainly the a philosophical question about colour there, which I choose not to address because it is very much, uh, well, what is meaning? What is <laughs> knowledge? What is truth? Well, experience is perception, right? Yeah. We are able to divide the visible spectrum into certain wavelengths and we know that different people will identify those different sets of wavelengths within the visible spectrum as the same colour. In that sense, colour is a, is a scientific replicable experience because different people call it the same thing now when we say spectrum we've talked about visible light we've talked about ultraviolet and infrared what is the spectrum we're talking about do you want us to give numbers of frequencies because i no way absolutely (laughs) Uh, six to a hundred oh my god okay i know that's wrong (laughs) Uh, like 50 million what the the numbers are i'll happily share the numbers i mean what what is the spectrum as a whole what else is on it and what is it called uh it's the electromagnetic spectrum it is the electromagnetic spectrum. Oh. And we have got X-rays, gamma rays, then... Microwaves. Microwaves, thank you. Radio oh, waves. Ra- radio waves. Which are very yeah. long and slow, and that's why they get everywhere and can go into I'm gonna space. Give you, I'm going to give you one point each there. Uh, you both named several parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, and we've in fact named them all. Uh, in order, it is radio waves, microwaves, infrared, visible light, ultraviolet... X-rays, gamma rays. So the micro in microwaves, is that to do with, like, wave height? Because they're, like, if radios are the long, slow ones, and then micro is the second biggest after rate, why is it micro? That is a really good question, and I think you're going to enjoy this answer, actually, Hang on, let me just pick up my drink and lean back in my chair. Do tell. 
it is not it is not the height of the waves we we it, waves have certain properties one of the one of the properties of a wave is its height and we describe that as the amplitude of the wave and the amplitude of any section of the electromagnetic spectrum could be tiny or could be huge uh, they are literally waves, and the thing that is waving is an electromagnetic field. So you can you can in fact detect it as a t as tiny changes in electricity and magnetism passing through a point. The other property, the one we've already been discussing, is the wavelength. Do you know what the wavelength of a wave is? It is the distance between the peak of a wave and then the next peak of the wave. So it's it's yeah those two points yep. and the distance between them. I'm going to give you a point for that. I like that. Very clear, very concise, and very correct. Points. Yay! Yeah, so the, the, the wavelength is what matters. And the reason microwaves are called microwaves is because their wavelengths are measured in micrometers. Because we are in the SI system of units. So we know what a meter is, I would hope. Yes. It's a, yeah, it's a measure of distance. Broadly, I can't believe yeah. that you yeah. waited for us to confirm. No, I don't know what a meter I, is. I, I only I, work in feet yeah. and yards. I just I worry when when the audio is only me talking for too long. Isn't it? <laughs> well, On this I, show, I, it's it's a blessing and a rarity. A problem I know you don't share, Tim. Um, <laughs> I just keep going. Blah 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 blah. blah. <laughs> um, now the the SI system of units says that we have prefixes we can append to meters to indicate a different amount, and that there's a system. And the one you're probably most familiar with is kilometers. Well, actually, I'm most familiar with a, a meter. To yeah. be honest. <laughs> but again, so kilometers is every one kilometer is a thousand meters. And you've probably also heard of centimeters and millimeters, yeah. no. which are hundredths of a meter and a thousandth of a meter. And I'm showing very basic things here. I'm sure that's not a surprise. But the system extends in both directions. And in fact, you, you again would be uh, familiar with some of the larger parts of the system, mostly from computers. Yes. So after kilometers, you technically, and we don't use them, but you technically have megameters. Megameters! <laughs> you have megameters, gigameters, and terameters. Petameters. Yeah. Eventually, oh. exactly. Now, on the other side, under millimeters, you have micrometers. So a micrometer is one one millionth of a meter. And then uh, a term you've probably heard before is nanometers, which is one one billionth of a meter. The intervals with which they move are so irritatingly inconsistent. Like, because they're all, they're all, I'm sure they have a consistency, but they're all like um, exponential in a way that yes. I find deeply irritating because you're like, oh, sorry, this is one down. And by one down, I mean a hundred thousand down. So it's actually every every increment for the, uh, except centimetres, which doesn't fit the pattern, is therefore bad and wrong. We shouldn't really use. But <gasps> it's, Oh, yes. Else... Uh, sorry for being the most human understandable measurement. <laughs> <laughs> Scientists won't allow it. <laughs> yeah. Everything else in the system is three zeros. One step of the, in terms of the, the prefixes we use, is add three zeros or take away three zeros, essentially. Right, right. So that's that's the consistent step. Yeah, because if you if you have to measure both very tiny things and very big things, you just can't do it with, in any other way. You've got to do it on a system which respects orders of magnitude, factors of 10. It'd take too long. Yeah. Visible light is, if I remember correctly, I really should have looked this up before the show, I believe it's from 340 nanometers to 790 nanometers, the wavelength of visible light. Let him know in the comments, please. Yeah, at yeah, him, yeah, he's, yeah. I think, at Brave Sir Robin on Twitter. Just <laughs> yeah, Brave know. Sir Fibblethip. Um, oh, 
brave Sir Fibblethip. Length and frighteningness of message uh, encouraged. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so microwaves are called microwaves because their wavelengths are measured in micrometers. But what a weird thing to do. Like, hey, we've got these measurements. We're going to name one of them about the, the, <laughs> the measure with which we use to measure them. And the other ones not, because did they just get discovered at very different times by different yeah. people and just no one can agree? Most of these phenomena were indeed discovered at different times by different people. And it took a long time for everyone to realise they were essentially all the same thing. Oh, so they've all got different backgrounds and conventions. And then it's like, exactly. oh, we've, we've been calling this for so long now, it'd be really awkward to change all the books. They had to have a big council, right? Yeah. Because that's what the SI scale is. Everyone met up and went, right. Yeah, we're just going to work this out because this is silly. And then America went, no, screw you, we're doing our own thing. I mean, Britain did for a long time too, but Britain eventually yeah, that's, changed that's their mind. That's because we're America light. Um, America, <laughs> di- America did a very fun thing in um, in paleontology where we all eventually, eventually, and still here and there, agreed on certain ages of the world. And then America said, that's great. We've got our own and none of them match up anyway. Goodbye. And it has messed with paleontology and geology ever since. Nice. Also, I have another thing, which is, first of all, I want to check, but then also, if I'm right, I want to show off to to Bryn, uh, Senpai, um, which is, I think I know what the smallest unit of measurement is. Yeah. And that is a Planck length. And is that... Yeah. Yeah! Yeah! Nailed it. Uh, I'll give you a point for that. That Yes! (laughs) A Planck length is way smaller than uh, any of the ones we've discussed. Uh, So under nanometers, there's... God, there's something like femtometers and atometers. And when you get to this kind of scale of things, everything is expressed in powers of 10. So uh, nanometers is 10 to the minus 9. A Planck length is something like 10 to the minus 34 meters. So that's 0.000, where you've got 33 zeros and then a 1. It got developed to try and like measure sort of like neutrons or something absurd wasn't it no way smaller than that i mean oh right okay fe- femtometers and atometers measure atoms and nuclei are uh, we getting onto quarks then well if you're talking about planck length you're talking way smaller than that even oh it's, wow okay it's like pl- a planck length is like the fundamental smallest possible distance in the universe uh, essentially is it a theoretical one is it sort of like mm, maybe this is a thing but it's a not a thing we can really look at. Well, you're, you're asking the big questions. Oh, yes. What What is God? Bryn, discuss. <laughs> uh, God is a Higgs boson and we found him. Oh, God. Just hanging about. Do not, refer, do not refer to the Higgs boson as the God part. Of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, make, I make an angry face. I don't know why they ever got that. Like, what, uh, what are we going to achieve with the Higgs boson? It's yeah. like, oh, my God. Especially given that it was like, well, we're pretty sure it exists, but we're going to prove it. Like, well, well, then like, not much has changed. I get it's important, but it's not like we're going to like do a test and then a door is going to open and then a bearded face is going to poke yeah. out and go, congratulations, you won. Maybe well, exactly. they thought it was. Uh, Maybe everyone at CERN was like, I really hope a door no, But anyway, no. Bryn, what we can be certain of is there's a chance it'll make a black hole. Oh, no! <laughs> we should all be In worried. In Switzerland. <laughs> no. The no. looks. The looks, people. Zurich. Zurich is a singularity now. <laughs> so, you may have heard of something called the, uh, the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. Yes. I have and have no idea what it is. Essentially, the properties of elements of the universe and by elements i mean mostly subatomic particles are not as well defined as we think a bit like tim discussed earlier where an electron is not really a little solid lump of thing but it's more of a cloud of possibilities well it turns out everything is like that and the 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 amount of possibility even varies a little bit 
and that that you know that's called uncertainty and basically what heisenberg's uncertainty principle says is yeah it is absolutely impossible to know certain properties of subatomic particles exactly because they fundamentally don't have these properties yeah. the properties are mixed in with a whole bunch of other properties and the whole thing is a little ball of possibilities hmm. and the planck length describes the smallest possible distance you could ever measure because if you get smaller than the planck length distance ceases to have meaning because it is absolutely physically impossible by the laws of the universe as we understand them for something to exist at all smaller than that because anything that exists must be at least uncertain enough to be bigger than that Oh. Is it, yeah, so is that, is that to do with where there's a... Again, this is Tim Tim Meredith half-remembering a fact from a science book, but there's a thing where you can either like view where it is or where it's going, but not both. There's a whole thing where yes. you, the act of looking at it messes with things so much that you can know one half of it or the other half of it, but never both. Absolutely. And that was the first demonstrable effect of the uncertainty principle. And the uncertainty principle has become broader than that over time as our understanding of quantum physics has increased. But the first observed, and in fact where it was coined, was about exactly that situation you're describing, where it turns out we cannot measure both the position and movement of an individual particle because if we measure one the other changes and they're they're related by a certain amount of uncertainty right but it it turns out that fundamentally there is some level at which the particle doesn't have those properties it has a combination of those two properties together and therefore to measure one or the other is essentially meaningless in some sense because all we can say is these two properties are related. And so that's where Elvis and Lord Luke are hiding, correct? Presumably so. Okay, no. right. One, one can only assume. That's a good hypothesis. Uh, devise a scientific test that tests that hypothesis and get back to me. <laughs> I found the Elvis particle. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we, we've gone pretty deep there and it takes a long time to explain the uncertainty principle well and the exact nature of uncertainty. Uh, but I'm definitely giving Tim a point for knowing about the position-momentum yes. uncertainty relationship. I'm telling you, this Bill Bryson book is playing dividends. I'm so <laughs> glad I started with that one and not Notes from a Small Island. So what, what you said is you've, you've done homework since last time we did this episode i've done i've done pre-homework <laughs> yeah so in fact in theory the entire electromagnetic spectrum could potentially be visible to different creatures oh yes we were talking about mantis shrimps oh yeah 20 minutes ago <laughs> but one of the one of the key features is any receiver of an electromagnetic signal works best when it is approximately the same size as the wavelength of the thing it's receiving ah. so in fact the bits in our eye which pick up visible light are about the same size as the wavelength of visible light and therefore it's very easy to think of uh, creatures which have slightly bigger or slightly smaller and therefore can pick up things the side of that but it would it's almost impossible to imagine a creature which can see radio waves because the the wavelength of radio waves is several meters and that would have to mean that the constituent parts of their eye that detected radio waves would have to be that large so you'd have to be talking about some sort of theoretical giant space whale that could see radio waves Uh, as their star marlins only we had space whales and star absolutely if only uh and it's all therefore for a similar reason almost impossible to imagine a creature that could see x-rays because it would have to be so small that there just wouldn't be enough atoms to make up a creature 
that could detect x-rays yes you haven't got enough atoms to have eyes (laughs) which feels like something like it should be some sort of weird uh, i don't know title for a biography not enough atoms for eyes five years is a well, I think, Amoeba, I think Atoms I for Eyes is a Tom York solo project, right? Hey, <laughs> eh? hey, eh? come on! That wow, that was niche. This ain't no, this ain't no them crooked vultures, <laughs> which I think is another supergroup of some kind. It is indeed. I, yeah. I like I like the idea that we're talking about supergroups and that one that supergroup was just Tom York on his own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, yes. <laughs> there is one other thing that was touched on this uh, year in South Fern, which I want to mention, and it was again, it was a th- almost a throwaway line, but uh, it's a topic. Most things are. It's a show entirely consisted of throwaway lines. It's a topic I enjoy, and I think that it uh, will appeal to uh, still a firmer fans, which is in episode 31, uh, you mentioned the concept of a Dyson Sphere. We did. Uh, which yes. is a favourite of science fiction fans around the world, and uh, given Telefirma is science fiction, hopefully therefore something of interest to our audience. And a completely irrelevant thing. In a sense. Yeah. Uh, well, the the thing is basically, once somebody has the technology to build a Dyson sphere, you can build something that's much better than a Dyson sphere. So it would only exist as a weird vanity project, <laughs> almost certainly, like those pretend castles that people build. What is a Dyson sphere? Uh, it's that thing from Halo. It's fundamentally the Halo, right? Like Halos are Dyson spheres. Is that true, or is that are they are they slightly different? Halo is a computer game of which I have heard. It is. Oh yes, you don't play computer <laughs> games. Um, it's weird. It's weird. Well, you think no. he would, and I yet know he doesn't. Science guys, but you're talking about pop culture here. I I think I had to lose a point for not knowing about Halo. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually, yeah. To be honest, Halo is a reasonably seminal work, I suppose, um, and actually probably quite influential in science fiction, despite being very derivative. But all science fiction is kind of derivative in certain ways. Oh, come back to us, Ben. Come back to us. Sorry, He's into his degree. Come back. <laughs> ah, uh, my degree and my career interest. Oh, I see. Ben, the literary theorist, yeah. has made appearance. Um, no, so a Dyson sphere is. I think uh, it's like a. It's a big ring with a surface on the inside. And as it rotates, it creates its own gravitational force because it's uh, it's rotating. I think, or is it the big donut? <laughs> These aren't spheres. What are the people talking about? No, I know. I think I think Dyson spheres are a little bit not spheres. You are almost there. Uh, oh, okay, Tim, fair enough. Tim has poked the major hole in your description of what a Dyson These sphere is. These are tubes. Is. These are bands. Not a sphere to be seen. Oh, hang on a minute. A Dyson sphere is the thing from uh, from matter from. Oh, I was gonna, I was gonna bring it yeah. down. He's literally reaching up to a bookshelf next to him, full of science fiction books. Ian M. Banks, Matter, the yeah. new culture novel, the Hydrogen Sonata. If you are a science fiction fan, uh, one of my favourite science fiction series is Ian M. Banks, the Culture Novels, uh, and he he describes in those novels a whole huge variety of places people can live in when you have the technology to create things more complicated than planets. But I don't think, actually, I think. He describes the the living environment in matter a little differently. I I, I think uh, so. The the ring you're describing well, that's, that's more of a Dyson onion. Yeah, the ring you're describing from Halo sounds pretty close, but the 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 fundamental problem is it's not a sphere. What is it with scientists and science people and naming things that are not the no thing no no that no no, no, no to be fair to be fair no 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 a Dyson sphere is a sphere. It's just basically a sphere with a livable. It's a hollow sphere with a livable surface on the inside. Then why did Bryn just say it's not a sphere? What is going on? Oh no, I said I said the thing Ben described. Was okay, not a sphere. all right. Yes, that the, the Halo ring, the Halo ring is like they peeled a Dyson sphere and like took a strip of it. Oh, like with an apple with a knife, like you yeah. see a cool person do. Okay, right, all right. Out, outburst yeah. retracted. <laughs> yeah. So the original description of a Dyson sphere is in fact an entire sphere built around a sun. Right. And the the idea is is that people live on the inside of that sphere. 
And in fact, the radius of that sphere is huge. It is, in fact, the same as the distance between the sun and the earth. So that sphere is ridiculously massive. A lot of livable space, a lot of real estate, though. Property yeah. price is probably quite low. More than can be comfortably conceived by a human mind. It would be quite the commute. I think this is in the three-body problem, but they use a very, very weak sun. So that you don't have to build it quite as far yeah. apart. Like, I think at one point somebody like travels from one side to the other and it doesn't take, you know, a hundred million years. Oh, yeah, because Brilliant. it's quite small. Have you read the three-body problem? I haven't would actually, recommend no. written by a Chinese oh, okay. theoretical physicist and it gets really theoretical physicists. Yeah, I have, I've heard good things. I should check it out. So a halo ring. One of the earliest descriptions of that was also in a sci-fi novel called Ring World by Larry Niven. Uh, it's fine. All <laughs> oh, the withering faint praise. Look, look it, it's, it's an old sci-fi novel, right? I won't recommend it wholeheartedly. There are aspects of it that are problematic, both scientifically and... Culturally. I'm going to guess at the gender politics not being okay and probably some eugenics because it's earlier sci-fi. Oh, they loved it. Oh, I they can't loved remember it. exactly, but there's definitely some problematic elements. But uh, So a, a ring world, or a, I assume this is what a halo ring is. Yes, it is, it is fundamentally they lifted a ring world. It's essentially, if, if you imagine that the Earth, when orbiting around the sun, left a trail behind itself that eventually joined up into a single ring. So the entire orbit of the Earth was in fact then... A ring of material. Yeah. And people could live on the inside of that ring. And the ring would slowly spin to create gravity, and people could live everywhere on the inside. That's what we would call a ring. If you take that ring and then you spin it on the other axis, so it gradually creates a sphere around the sun, that's what a Dyson sphere would look like. You can have very inconsistent gravity in a Dyson sphere, though. Uh, well, it would depend exactly how you were, how you span it. But yes, you're right that you you would not get the same gravity everywhere within a Dyson sphere. No, because there'd be like there'd be points around the axis where it spins, where the gravity disappears. More or less, yes. You would you would have you, yeah the the equator would have the highest gravity and the the poles would have the lowest gravity. And I'm going to give you another point for understanding that because oh. that's very good. I remember you explained gravity to me in the last episode, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was thoroughly chided. But what force isn't it? That creates that uh, centrifugal. Yes. Very nice. It's not that's an and effect. It is not centri- a force. Centripetal force, right? Nice. And also, nice. I believe yeah. gravity is a thing that we call a thing, but we believe gravity is an effect resulting of a thing we don't understand because we don't actually have a good explanation for it. Very good. Very good. Yes. yes. You didn't remember Bill the words, Brighton. but you remembered the principle. <laughs> so have two bonus points for remembering yeah. something from the previous episode. Oh yeah, because it's what it's called, like the weak, um, the weak attraction force or weak. You know, you're thinking of one of the different forces. Oh, okay. um, gravity is actually the result of the curvature of space-time due to the presence of mass. Imagine a rubber sheet exactly. and an iron ball placed upon it. Well, guess what? It's not that. This is another one of those lies we use. <laughs> yeah. Not lies, models. Helpful Sorry. models. Sorry. Helpful models, brackets, lies. <laughs> it's a flat Earth. I'm telling you. Once you have a Dyson sphere, you can have smaller things that are essentially parts of a Dyson sphere. And a ring is essentially one of them. But in fact, some models of Dyson spheres and some model of rings say rather than filling in every possible space, why not have, you know, things roughly Earth-sized at regular intervals around the edge, for example. Or have holes in your Dyson sphere, uh, you know, so that some of the light can get out. Uh, and things like this. But yeah, so a, a Dyson sphere is in, in theory a complete enclosure. A ring world is a, a ring around and there are there are various 
things that are like plays on the, those two basic ideas or partial or somewhere between the two. For example, you could have a series of interlocking rings that met at the axis of rotation and therefore you could have multiple ring worlds around a single star. What's the point of this? Why, why would we bother? To create all this extra space. The amount of habitable space you would get from any of these projects uh, is absolutely huge. Because we've got very limited Goldilocks zoning, so we can't just go to another planet and go, we'll use this one, because guess what? The atmosphere isn't thick enough or whatever, so let's do a thing. We're talking about, you know, civilizations here like Stella Firma, which are powerful enough to basically create whatever they want. You have to... Sure. Because th- there is there is one very natural, very huge barrier to ever creating certainly a ring world and even more so a Dyson sphere. What do you think that might be? Uh, it's political will. It's political will. <laughs> <laughs> it's been locked up in Congress for decades. The pork barreling Bryn, the pork barreling. Um, I'm going to say it's you'd have to have so much stuff to, to the sheer mass you're building you'd have to like go to another solar system crush everything in it up into what you know base material and then rebuild it somewhere it would be it would be really hard Bryn it'd be really difficult point to see. yeah I <laughs> yes. mean you very much have to harvest the entire mass content of multiple solar systems to build any of these things we've just got to work out some sort of harbour process but to create usable matter from nothing yeah. What is a harbour process? It's how you make ammonia. Oh. That's yeah. how that's how all of all of the world's food is now produced because it creates it out of of a forgotten water. I can't remember. Anyway, oh, it makes fertilizer. there was ninety nine percent invisible about it, wasn't there? It makes nitrates or something. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there's lots oh, yeah. of things about it because the guy who made it also made loads of poison gases and it oh, was really was dark. It, it was a behind his, the bastards. Yeah. 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 He was a he was a weird dude. He was awful. <laughs> yeah. He was a weird dude. Anyway, Bryn, let's not talk about war criminals. But that's fine. So so. <laughs> Theoretically, if we indeed had the power of stellar firma and we could just pump out planets willy-nilly because we felt like it, we would, in theory, also have the ability to create larger, more complex habitable objects. And in fact, a planet is a naturally occurring object, but it is not necessarily the best design. It's just the one we've got. It's got poles that are useless. If we wanted to create a lot more livable space, then rings or Dyson spheres are create huge amounts of space but also give you huge amounts of resource because you it's very easy to collect a lot of the radiation given off by a sun which is the primary source of power for any advanced civilization the other one which we mentioned the culture novels just now is what in culture is described as an orbital which is essentially is a ring world but on a much smaller scale and rather than being the entire orbit of a planet you you know you have planet sized areas a bunch of them bolted together into a ring and you just set that ring into the same position as earth is and start it spinning and you get a lot of free real estate but you don't have to spend quite as much you you get you get more surface area for your buck essentially it takes less material to create the same amount of surface area but you can create gravity the same way and you get sunshine the same way and it's a pretty efficient structure yeah that's the thing about the dyson sphere of the ring world though no night and day which should be really confusing (laughs) well if you if you put it spinning if you put the ring and then you put the it it thin side on and then it's spinning you would have a night well no because the side you're living on is always facing the sun a bit like we we can't see the dark side of the moon right because the moon is always facing the same way relative to us absolutely yeah. If you're on the inside of the ring and you look Oh, sorry, up, we're on the yes. inside of the ring. Also, if you're on the outside of the ring, you'd never get any sun. It would be the opposite problem. <laughs> so, for example, in the original novel Ringworld by Larry Niven, you have the ring world, and then you essentially have giant solid blocks, which are like these plates 
also orbiting the ring worlds with big holes between each one just inside so that there is basically there's a you have a roof approximately half the time to create a day night cycle uh right right yeah that'd work once you're creating giant structures in space anyway why the hell not why why not but could, couldn't you like just slightly tilt the angle so that you would spin and then on the, on that spin you'd get sunlight and then and then you get to the other side and then you'd be in the shade because the back would be towards the sun so that'd work not if you were orbiting the sun which is what a, ri- a ring world orbits a sun. You're thinking about the, the orbital concept that I described, where the ring is floating away from the sun. And, th- and in that case, then you can have one side of the ring pointing the sun and one side of the ring pointing away from the sun. But if you're orbiting the sun, if your ring is around the sun, then the inside of the ring is fundamentally always pointing at the sun. It's, yeah. All right, all right, fine. I didn't solve a deep science problem with a half-assed thought in a room <laughs> in Brighton. All right, fine. <laughs> but... Since Dyson Spheres were mentioned in the show, and indeed in another episode, which we won't get into, uh, one of the clients asks for a planet cra- capable of producing stars, which, as we've discussed in previous times, not happening. Slight contradiction. You, you, you were you were you were fundamentally opposed to providing the client with such a thing because it would mean yep. they were infringing on the uh, intellectual property of Stella Firma. Yeah, so as we discussed. It would be a big problem size-wise as well, because one of the mm. defining features of a planet is that it is smaller than a star. But we've also mentioned Dyson spheres as well, uh, and g- given the the ability of Stella Firma to create the things it creates, it's likely that they would be capable of creating much more interesting, much larger structures as well as as well as the planets they pump out on a uh, weekly basis. I've, I've got a confession to make. Now, now we've discussed and talked about Dyson spheres, I had no idea at all what a Dyson Sphere was when we were doing that episode. I thought it was something else. Luckily, it seems I didn't say anything specific Remember, enough about it. I also it. answered that question wrong. So I I also didn't know what a Dyson Sphere Neither was. Neither of us. So we I did mean, an episode where we were talking I about knew Dyson it was a, Spheres. I knew it was a sci-fi <laughs> planetary like hab concept. So that was enough to get us through the episode. So sadly, this year, we didn't have enough time to discuss the the concepts broached in episode 29 where we met a, a four-dimensional being who existed within our within our space i was going to ask you about extra dimensions Again, and higher dimensional read the three body problem the three body problem is all about that stuff Bryn. you'd love it in episode 38 we were building a workout zone for someone and i wanted to ask you why you didn't just say let's give them a nice high gravity planet uh because all right hindsight's yeah, we, 2020 we about it is the fundamental <laughs> answer in one of david's fact corners he built uh he described a, a, a civilization which built a, a statue which was uh, 0.5 astronomical units high. I didn't get to ask you if you knew what an astronomical unit was or exactly how big that statue would be. I wrote this, Bryn, and I, because I knew, because this is Patreon stuff for people who haven't listened to this, I knew this would come up. I looked it up and the astronomical unit is the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So I looked it up. So when I decided to like build something that high, I was like, is that like pretty big, but not so big as to be like across an entire galaxy? So yes, Bryn, I do know. Well, let's just say even building that would encounter the same problem as building a Dyson sphere. There is probably not enough stuff inside it a solar a system. It was a funny joke, to construct It was that a large. funny it could have been joke very, that people were supposed to enjoy. <laughs> to be fair, the whole point of that was they built it and it destroyed their society because it made them crash into the sun. <laughs> so, to be fair, <laughs> well, I could I could do an entire episode on just that three minute segment alone. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> So and that's what I tried yeah, to so research. Sadly. If you want to know what ground Bryn's gears so much, subscribe to Patreon. 
<laughs> so sadly, there's always more we could discuss, despite the much smaller presence of science in season two. And I, for one, am very excited to see where Trexel and David uh, end up in season three and how much science is or isn't involved there. Well, as Tim said, we'll sit down and work it out. I <laughs> was <laughs> oh, speaking of which, Ben, we should really book in that chat. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, we probably should actually. Yeah. Until then, all hail the board. All hail the board. All hail the board. Make preserve and keep you. Stella Firma is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International Licence. Hi everyone, Alex here. I'd just like to take a moment to thank some of our patrons. Kenna Malone, Meg Simmons, James, Megan Green, Talbot Elfgrunge, Julia Meshbaum, Chuck Lamming, Sarah Burke, Aikas, Serena Jensen, Vivox, Brinanza, Darth Nexus, Tiny Demon Dragon. Avery Brakel, Philip Keeley, Darcy M, Maria Blowers, Kellen, Cats 2019 was a pretty good movie, Allegra Rosenberg, Rachel Berger, Eleanor May Langston, Ren Valadin, Sarah Puyani, Ashley Crutchfield, Space Arby's, Annie Nate Schindler, Lana Elise, Emily Rose, Rebecca B, Piper, Trinity, Evan Lucas, Elwids. June W, Kaylee T, Saren Ray's Best Hope, Erin Yost, Corbett, Erebus Adora, Senna Redtail, I, Lorelei Milland, Matthias Elliott, Natasha Thompson, Dr. Tea Time, Mariana Bitterman, Sarah Norris, Rachel Gould. Thank you all. We really appreciate your support. If you'd like to join them, go to www.patreon.com forward slash Rusty Quill and take a look at our rewards. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.